welcome to the Find Your Calling podcast. I am Mandy Kay and I have a special episode for you today. I am speaking with Bailey Seema, who is en route towards the top of Australia on a 5,000 kilometer trek along the entire east coast of Australia. She is doing this to raise awareness around mental health and in the process hopes to raise $100,000 for the Black Dog Institute. Now, this episode does come with a trigger warning as we discuss Bailey's experience living with bipolar disorder, as well as touching on hospitalization, eating disorders, and suicide. So please check in with yourself and your body. And if it doesn't feel right to listen right now, that's totally fine. Taking care of yourself is the priority. And there are contact details in the show notes for services in Australia where you can get support. But let's dive into this moving conversation. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today, Bailey. Thank you so much for joining me. So let's start. I would love you to tell us about how this all came about. Like, where did this idea come from? Um, So this one for me is like quite a personal journey as well. I actually was diagnosed with major depressive disorder when I was about 14. And, you know, you think 15 years are hard enough and then you put a chronic mental illness in there. It really does make it a little bit spicy. Um, So then I was later diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 19. Uh, And during this period, I really, really got into hiking as sort of my cathartic outlet. It was kind of a bit of a touchstone for me in the sense that I could do it whether I was well or unwell. You know, there were so many things in my day-to-day tasks, even sometimes showering, for example, that if I was catatonically unwell, it felt near impossible. It was quite uh, wonderful and sort of interesting how I could always hike. You know, it didn't matter where my headspace was at, I could always do that activity. This by no means meant that I was out there doing anything to the scale of what I'm doing now. Sometimes I'd be, you know, hour uh, walks through the local bushland or on the beach or anything like that, but it was kind of my space uh, to just walk. Um, And, you know, during that whole diagnosis and process of managing uh, bipolar, which was a really, really sort of rocky road in itself because of all the stigmas and stereotypes and, and things around it, um, I actually reached out to a mental health hospital I have in my local region of Newcastle. And that wasn't a crisis admission, but it was it was basically me just going, you know, I can't manage this on my own anymore. Um, and my family, no matter how supportive they were, we were all completely out of our depths of to how to navigate this, this quite complex illness. And um, so, yeah, I went into into hospital um, probably seven months out of the year, you know, off and on accessing treatments and um, therapies and different things like that. And I sort of had a bit of a Forrest Gump moment, I guess you could say, where I just sort of woke up and I was like, I, I've just got to get out of here. Like, I've just got to, I've just got to go. I've got to, and I, was, I wasn't running away from the hospital uh, or from the town. I was trying to run away from myself, you know, very common when people go through those sort of traumas. I basically packed this backpack with a, water bottle in it and um you know I signed myself out to the day which I was allowed to do and um just started walking in my converses and sort of at the end of the day about eight hours later I turned up at my residential home in Cays Beach and my family went how did, how did you get here and I was like I walked and they were like what do you mean and I said oh I walked and um mum and dad did the maps of to how far I walked it turned out I'd walked like 30 kilometers and they just sort of went what the hell 
to me, it was just one of those things for the first time in a really long time uh, that I felt quite proud of myself. Like I felt like I'd achieved something when things like, you know, trying to hold down a job and relationships and things like that felt so out of reach, you know, to have something that I felt like I could do and, you know, do pretty well. That to me was on reflection. It was monumental in this whole process, whether I realized it at the time or not, it really was like this kind of turning point for me. So, you know, again, that, that didn't fix anything. Like, I still had to go and, and do all the things that I had been doing. I was still, you know, quite unwell for a year or two after that. And then I was sort of in hospital one day and I was trying to plan out my days worth of doctor's appointments and different things. I knew I had blood tests, which were quite a regular thing that I had to do. And I was almost like setting out my week's itinerary. And it was just all this illness, you know, it was all orientated around this illness and, and different things like that. And trying to maintain wellness and, and consistently just busting my guts, I guess, to really trying to stay on the plateau of everyone else. Uh, and still then, you know, not even feeling like I was, you know, even close to the mark in comparison to peers my own age and, and you know, other people that I knew. And I sort of just had this epiphany that I just went, like, this can't, this can't be it. You know, this can't be it for me. This can't be the rest of my life. I I've already, you know, lost so much in the last 10 years. I can't do this for another 60. Like, I, I won't I won't do it. I just can't do it. I started to think about, again, there was so many times where people were expressing the things I could and couldn't do, you know, and that was kind of like a real benchmark of my life, just these two categories of, of things I could and couldn't achieve. And um, even, for example, studying, you know, at university, which I'm still a nursing student, but it was quite difficult to do that for prolonged periods because of the instability of my moods. And, yeah, just so many other things that I, I'd grown up wanting to have felt like they were just now forever inachievable. And I just went, you know what? I'm really good at walking. I'm really, really good at walking. <laughs> and and I, I, you know, whether it's, hell or high water, I, I can do it. And I know I can do that. I might not be able to get a mortgage and a picket fence, but I can walk like that's my thing. And from there, it started its own sort of catalyst where I was thinking about like, what's something that I could do to prove to myself, to, you know, to prove to other people with mental illnesses, what's something so astronomically large, I would never question my future with the word impossible in it like what's something mm. I could do on such a large grand scale that would you know show myself and show other people the capabilities of people with mental illnesses like from that started thinking about it and I, I did come up with a lot of scenarios um but the east coast was just one that I just went I, I reckon I could do it like I know it would be challenging but I think I could do it and um I'm, I'm gonna do that and interestingly enough when I told people straight away, they were like, yeah, that's fantastic. You know, especially my family and friends, they were like all over it. Like, yeah, that's great. Anything that gets you out of bed in the morning, bells, like we don't, you know, we support it. And then as it got closer and closer to the, the date where I was just like, I'm still doing it. Everyone was like, Ooh. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, that's sort of where it all stemmed from. But I, I think the thing as well, which was a really, strong part of it was when I first got my diagnosis I was looking for any glimmer of hope out there that I could have a good life with it you know and unfortunately which is a really really common misconception with people with 
mood disorders and, and other disorders like schizophrenia, they are very acutely sort of targeted with stereotypes around this is what you're all like. It's a, it's a blanket. You know, if you have this condition, you're all kind of, we'll have psychotic episodes, we, you know, we'll be unstable, may potentially go down the line of, of drugs and alcohol. It's, it's almost like people sort of set your, your path for you a bit with it. And um, I was, you know, really unwell and I was like, realistically, I was only a kid, you know, that's 19, 18, 19, still really young. And um, I was trying to look for anyone that I could sort of see that had bipolar and had a really solid life despite it, you know, and, and I really struggled to come up with much. You know, there were a few people, but there was a lot more that contributed to that negativity than there were people in that positive column. And um, I pretty much with this look, I just went, you know what, I, I want to be the person that I needed when I was younger, when I was suffering. And, you know, and that for me was really important. It still is really important for me. So, yeah. That's such an amazing story, Bailey. <laughs> like that huge intention you set around what is it that I could do that will mean that I won't view things as impossible for me in my life. Like, and then the idea coming from that really clear intention that you set and then, yeah, to be able to play that role model that you so desperately wanted to see, like it's such a worthy cause and contributing so much so thank you for your tenacity yeah stubborn is what gets thrown around more than that but thank you (laughs) (laughs) same same hey (laughs) so I would love to know because so many of the people listening to this podcast are also searching for their way to make a difference and not always knowing what that is or maybe having an idea but then not knowing how to make it happen. So I'd love to hear just a little bit more about that process for you. Like you you had this idea and then as the day got closer, your family also started wavering. But how did yeah. you make it happen from idea to actually doing it and not get dissuaded by the people around you who started worrying? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing for me was when I first had the idea, and I, and I think this is, one of the most powerful things you can understand about your own dreams and aspirations is that the first step in making them real is talking about them out loud. And it's talking about them to people on such a large scale that you can get people's insights from all over. You know, you're not looking for validation from people going, wow, a fantastic idea. You want to see how they react to them. And But every time you say it out loud, you make it a little bit more solid. Mm-hmm. And so I was I'm a natural sort of dreamer but then again I'm probably not the first bipolar person to come up with a grandacious idea about something you know it's quite common so when I was talking to it about people I sometimes even enjoyed more so than the people that just went yeah that's amazing I, I enjoy the people that sometimes become at it with a little bit of not cynicism but skepticism like how would you make it work you know mm-hmm. what would you do in this situation and even sometimes that that's hard to hear it makes you think and you go well, okay, well, riverways, well, I guess I'll swim across them or I'll get a boat crossing. or But it, it adds it adds layers to it. It's like, where are you going to sleep? And even in the stages of just organising it, being like, oh, I'll get a tent. You know, but they're just like little pieces that are really important. You know, then you also feel a little bit of ownership, I guess, of it as well. Because the more people you, you tell, you feel like, 
not that backing out's ever a problem, but you feel like you're legitimizing it and it's real. So therefore, you know, there's people that know about it that support you and stuff like that. It's not just a you thing anymore, which can be helpful. And then it wasn't actually until my biggest thing that I like, this was probably as far as like stepping stones, this was my biggest one into actually making it reality. So I'd been talking about it for a year or two and everyone's going, that's nice, Ailey. <laughs> that's good, sweetheart, you know. But I actually had finished my uni degree for the, for the semester. I was sitting there and I was thinking about this book and it honestly was something I used to daydream about for years and years and years. And I told people I was going to do like a trial run. Like I was going to do a section to see how it went. And everyone did the same thing. Yeah, Bailey, that's great. No problem. And I just had this uh, kind of, you know, effort moment. I went, if I don't go now, I'm never going to go. So I booked a ticket to Cool and Gadda, a one-way plane ticket. When it rang up my dad, I said, Dad, can you drive me to the airport on Monday? And he goes, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Cool and Gadda and I'm going to walk to Coffs Harbour. And he was like, what do you mean? And I was like, no, I've booked it. And he said, but you don't have any gear. I said, oh, I'm in Kathmandu right now, who, mind you, like upsold me to <laughs> a <laughs> And he sort of went and drove me up and I, and I got off the plane and it was one of those real moments like, like what the hell are you doing? Like, But I started walking and that was the uh, pinnacle of doing everything wrong. And that was okay by me because I knew it was going to be a a learning curve, you know, and it was, it was the world's biggest learning curve. And um, I actually went during the first La Nina that we had, which was the first, you know, East Coast Low. So I was drenched. I had the wrong gear. Everything was too heavy. I had no way of really knowing how to navigate stuff. I, you know, I did everything wrong. And I get people ringing me all the time being like, it's okay, babe, you know, just stop if you need to, because I'd be in a lot of pain often. I said, no, like I'm doing it. <laughs> Hell or hot water, I'm doing it. And it was really important for me to also test the psychological limits I can push myself, not the physical ones. Like our, our bodies are fantastic. And they'll do pretty much what we ask. But that psychological element, you know, knowing what our capacity is, that was important for me to see if I could, if I couldn't do this chunk, I sure as hell probably couldn't manage the East Coast. But after all that, you know, and after all the injuries and everything going wrong on a, wrong on a daily I finished up in Coffs Harbour. It took me three and a half weeks. And my parents drove up and picked me up. Mum said that I sort of looked like a prisoner of war because I was just <laughs> completely <laughs> falling apart. And I was exhausted. And, you know, it was really hard. But I said to them, I was like, I'm going to do the East Coast. And they just sort of went, oh, no, she's really going to do it this time. Ever since that, which I think was my biggest, because I didn't do it for charity. I didn't do it for, I didn't even let people know I was doing it. It was solely for me. But after that, there was a level of credibility that I didn't have prior and, a, and also a knowledge of self as well that I knew I was competent and, and capable to do it, even if it looked, even if it was ugly, like I could do it. Yeah, so pretty much when I got back from that, it was kind of on. And then a year and a half later, two years later, I, I was on the road. So, yeah. Wow. So it's incredible to see the power of just doing parts of it to build that level of confidence and competence in yourself. I'd love you to share, like, what were some of the thoughts you had to overcome? Like, even between when you booked that flight to Coolangatta, did you have to sort of overcome any part of yourself or any resistance to actually following through on it by that point? Oh, of course. And even when I had stage, I was scared my face. I'm I'm scared my face now, but (laughs) I I recognized that I was more terrified of staying where I was than anything that could 
potentially go wrong attempting something like that. And for me, that was quite powerful for, for where I was at because I felt like I had nothing to lose. Like there's nothing more dangerous than a man in a fight with nothing to lose. And that was where I was at. I just, I didn't, that fear of, you know, potentially even dying, which is a reality I face almost days when I do river crossing, climbing cliffs, all that sort of stuff. But I also recognized like, and I found it was another really powerful moment for me when I recognized that you could be scared and competent. You know, courage isn't in the absence of fear. It's deciding something more important than fear itself. So for me, being able to be okay with being scared and do it anyway was like a really, really big turning point for me, I think, in that whole process. As far as people turning it into it a reality from that that thought process, and I think this is a really interesting one that most people don't consider. When we're thinking about doing something that's kind of large scale and has some risks to it and whatever else it is, we're thinking, you know, down the track and we're thinking about worst case scenarios and we're, you know, thinking about the outcomes and we're trying to do risk management. But I found the scariest part about the whole process and still to this day stand by it is starting. You know, that's it. If you can start it, you've done it. You know what I mean? Like that's, you know, if you're brave enough to try, you're brave enough to succeed and like it's that, but nobody thinks about the first day of walking, you know, or the first coffee you sell in a new business. That's never the first thought, but it's the scariest one. Like, and it, it really is what stops us because once you've done that, you're beyond capable of finishing it off because that really is the biggest hurdle to, to start. It's so true and such an important point to make to people who have an idea. So one interesting thing about it, Bailey, is that it, taken quite a few years like years in the making so what obstacles have you faced and overcome you've touched on a few of them but you've now been on the road as well for over six months so yeah I'd love to hear a bit more about those obstacles that you've overcome along the way look as far as obstacles are concerned I find that more often than not once you navigate them that's almost adds to your repertoire of what you know you can do. So there's, you know, and especially if, if you approach them with like, if I do the wrong thing here, that's okay. We'll just learn from it anyway. You know what I mean? So for example, when I first started, cause I do the coast, I cross a lot of rivers. Um, I'll swim across a lot of rivers and I've come unstuck a few times where I've thought, you know, I'm, oh, <laughs> you know, or, or I've run out of food or I've run out of water or, you know, and in that moment it can be so terrifying because you think, oh, the ramifications of this are going to just be like monumental sort of. But the the reality is most times things work themselves out. You know, I, I don't like to be one of those people that throws stuff to the wind, but more often than not, things just kind of happen. You know, I think a lot of the time we sort of just got to trust ourselves with being able to do the things. Like I, I might look at situation and go, that's really dangerous, but I trust in myself that I'm quite physically strong and, and, you know, confident that I'll, I'll make it out and it'll be all right. might not be comfortable, might get hurt, but, you know, it'll be all right. It's more of the prolonged periods of strenuous activity that can have a real, you know, play on, you know, your body, but also different things like your sleep cycles and stuff like that. I, I found in the first three months what was quite difficult for me was being in that fight or flight all the time. You know, I would say another really hard challenge is when you've got like consistent discomfort and trying to regulate that so 
you know when you go for a half an hour run and you're like this sucks this sucks and then it's done when you're hiking on a say a 40 kilometer beach you just have to be on that beach uncomfortable all day and that's an interesting place for your mind to have to go and and because there's there's no way out of it you know you've just got to regulate yourself and try and talk yourself through it and just keep with it you know as far as like tenacity is concerned it's also hard sometimes not knowing you know where you're going to sleep when you're going to get food when you're going to do things like that but if you do sort of anything regularly enough it kind of loses its shine as much and now you know it is what it is in the moments that you are in that discomfort and you're like this is really uncomfortable and also being in fight or flight for so long what are some of those coping strategies that you have when you're in that space for me it sort of ranges depending on the terrain and depending on what what the discomfort is or what the pain is or you know it really does range so there's for example beach walks I did a 90 mile beach walk in Victoria so that's 144 kilometers of just sand that was its own sort of mental game um you know constantly walking towards a horizon that kept just you know ghosting on you disappearing so it was just constantly yeah um but I developed a thing um it's called a tantrum timer and what I do is I put it on for six minutes and I might take my pack off I might kick it a few times I'll scream I'll shout I'll say anything that I want to say that normally I wouldn't uh, including you know this is you know, a lot of sort of explicit language and, you know, around the, around the notion of I want to quit, I want to, you know, these are all these emotions that are going through me. And, you know, I'll lay down and stand sometimes in a fetal position to try and hold myself together. You know, it, it can be really, really sort of intense in its presentation. But when that timer goes off, I like get myself up and I brush off the sand and I put my pack back on and, and I just keep going. And sometimes I'll need five or six of those a day. But it was one of the best ways that I could let my emotions out in a healthy way, especially the negative ones. There's ones that really, you know, are super disruptive and uncomfortable in a place that was safe, you know, and I wasn't embarrassed about them. You know, when you you lose your cool and you might be around a family member or, you know, by yourself or something and you go, you know, you start chastising yourself like, I can't believe you you did that. That's so inappropriate and as your behavior. But that's a perk of being by yourself so much. So. I would, I would make a space for these really toxic feelings and thoughts and stuff to come out however they wanted to. There was no judgment. But I knew when that timer went off, I'd put myself right back and, and, and keep going. And, I'm, yeah, again, I might do them all the time. They were really helpful, for example, at times where there was a lot of panic involved. So if I was walking through the bush and then all of a sudden my track just stops and I'm just stranded in the bush going, do I go back? Do I... And that can be super overwhelming. Um, and other problems like that. And again, it's such a fantastic technique for myself personally because I feel more, I might have the same problem that I had six minutes ago, but the pressure behind it is gone, you know, and there's more room for just actual reasonable thoughts and feelings and, and, you know, just taking your time with it. So that was one. Another really helpful one as far as just like self-talk, which is sometimes I'll repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and it can get really really tedious but if I ever feel like something's too much if I can't do it anymore if I can't keep moving forward for whatever reason I sort of 
remember why I started. Now I remind myself and sometimes I'll go on a tangent and I'll just start thinking about it. And I draw a lot of strength off that because, you know, I, I still, you know, even currently will get individuals from psychiatric hospitals reaching out to me saying, you're the reason I got out of bed today and, and stuff like that. And it's those sort of things because sometimes when you're so in your own head, on your own path, where you're not considering anybody else, it feels like the end of the world and it feels really, um, I'd say, pointed at that problem. But sometimes when you can ask yourself, like, why are we doing this to start? And that allows that to sort of, you know, come back in a little. So I find those quite helpful. And then again, I always uh, ring my family and friends. And so it's like really bad, especially towards the um, pointy end of having my pack on for eight hours, which is about 18 kilos. So it can be really, really painful. And I'll ring up my family and friends and I'll say, like, I'm struggling. <laughs> Tell me something interesting, you know, distract me. And yeah, there's been a lot of times where I'm like, be more interesting. <laughs> I don't want to hear about your laundry. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, you know, so I find that really awesome as another technique. It's that sort of stuff that sort of get me going. They're amazing techniques and like techniques for life, like giving mm. giving space for those emotions, which is just energy in motion and such healthy sure. role modeling for moving through those so thanks for sharing those really specific techniques I'm just enthralled with this journey and I am sure that everybody Mm -hmm. listening is as well because it's phenomenal all right so you have been walking for over six months I'm really curious to know like how and if it's changed you what kind of skills and strengths have you discovered about yourself in this process Oh, it obviously changed me, but the a really big one for me as well is I may be a little bit naive with it. I sort of went into it and I was like, this is going to change me for the best and I'm going to have feathers in my hair and I'm just going to live my best life and it'll be fantastic. And any sort of experience that has a like these sort of life-altering experiences, you can't dictate the change. And that was a big one for me. And even when I got through Newcastle again and I was meeting with people I knew and loved, and they were like, do you feel different? And I was like, yes, I do feel different. And they sort of say, is it a good different? Or and I go, well, it's not really either. It's just different. I've just have lived a different sort of lifestyle and had different things that have happened to me. And especially a lot of time to reflect on my own, you know, all you can do is think all day. So a lot of time to reflect on my own behaviours and, and memories and things like that. And of course, it's definitely changed me, but I can't really dictate where that goes. And I don't think I was able to quite push it in the avenue that I wanted it to. And, and not that that's a bad thing, but it's an interesting thing sort of to to grapple with. But like I, I do have a greater appreciation for things, you know, and for, you know, the small things. Like sometimes I'll be walking all day and I'll be like, oh, I need to sit down. And then there'll be like a, a random park bench or something. I'll be like, yes, a park bench to sit on. Like in what world do you go, oh, a park bench? <laughs> or a local at a, at a caravan site giving me breakfast or something. And you go, yes, this is awesome. Or, you know, seeing a really cool seagull or something that you like. So that for me has really opened up a lot of that gratitude, appreciation for things. But in the same sense, I, I don't want people to be mistaken that that might not also have other ramifications. Like for me, my tolerance of certain things has gone down. It's an interesting concept because you think that all change is going to be positive, right? But if I have somebody ring me 
and I'm, you know, waist deep in mud in the middle of nowhere, miserable. And they're like, my Amazon parcel didn't arrive today and it's rah, 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 rah. And I have to really consciously go, okay, even though that's not a problem for you, that's a problem for them, that's okay. And so, but there was a stage there where I was um, not confrontational, but would go, hey, that's not really a problem. But that's not helpful either. You know, that's, that's not helpful for anyone. And I talked to a, um, a psychologist on my walk to sort of make sure that I touch base with someone about those sort of things. And I also, you know, will spend a lot of time with individuals in the community who have their own lived mental illness experience or suicide uh, has run through their family. Maybe they've lost a loved one. Maybe they've lost a child or a partner or thing. So they like to connect. And in the same sense, I connect with these people. I see this devastation. I hear the stories of their loved ones. And then, you know, two hours later to have somebody complaining about their coffee being burnt, you sort of go, but again, that's not helpful either. So I understand my capacity as far as strength is a lot larger than I thought it was. Resilience is a really big one for me now. Like I, I recognise I'm very, very resilient. You know, I'm more of a nurturer. I can recognise a lot of positive things in myself, which I think before I kind of was always focusing on what I didn't have, which is nice. Even, for example, when people travel around the world for a year, they come back different, not necessarily good or bad, but just different. Yeah, and it strikes me, Bailey, that it sounds like you always had resilience, like to have been going through the experiences that you had with mental health for that long throughout your teen years. That says to me incredible resiliency, but I guess you've discovered it and been able to shift the focus, like you say, onto the strengths rather than the challenges that you're facing. Yeah, I think. Through my teen years, there was always, that doesn't always look like just being a champion of every day, but sort of not giving up on your worth, I guess, was always something that I practiced, but I can't even take complete credit for that. I was, was really lucky with the family support that I had and that sort of network around me, which unfortunately a lot of people don't experience in their life. So, um, yeah, I think it was a combination of me and my sort of attitudes and mindsets and stuff and then also people that backed me supported me just a one-off thing it doesn't discriminate it can happen to anyone anytime so for me having family that had the vocabulary and the support to to assist me uh, was just probably what saved me my life more than just my sort of grit I guess you know it feels like a, a good point to ask you what advice do you have for those in families and you know families and friends who are supporting people with mental health issues like what's the best thing that we can do to support people assuring your loved one of of their value of their worth and their of, of how much you do love them you know that even though you might say something to um years prior that might not mean that you know for example having an exceptionally bad day that hearing that might not strike a chord and, and may give them the strength to keep going in that day you know whether it's quite as severe as suicide or just just hardship in general you know that that can be a real thing to do is to consistently remind our loved ones that they're loved and to consistently remind them that you are always there if they are struggling you know whether it's a conversation whether it's just a sit in silence but it's company keeping that open communication there is really really important uh, I would also have to say as well Having, you know, doing that a little bit of education, especially from really credible sources, including places like the Black Dog, Beyond Blue, what the signs and symptoms are for 
chronic mental illness, but specifically more self-harm and suicide. Uh, they can present in different ways in different people. I think it's really, really important that we express to people that there is there is no judgment in expressing their thoughts because that's where it becomes dangerous when people sort of harbour their thoughts in an unsafe way and they feel like they can't express it. So it just keeps circulating. It feels trapped, you know, and it feels hopeless and isolated. People will often ostracise themselves. So in that way, I sort of, for example, have a bit of a thing. And again, this isn't backed by psychology counselling. I'm neither. You know, this is just lived experience. But I do have people that will reach out to me because of that lived experience, where firstly, if somebody expresses they've been having suicidal thoughts or thoughts of self-harm, I express to them, I'm, you know, really, really grateful that you felt comfortable enough with me to talk about it. That's fantastic. That positive enforcement, that that's a good thing to do. You know, not shutting it down, not freaking out. You might on the inside be freaking out. But in that moment, trying the best to compose it and remind them that was really, really good that they took that step. That's, it takes a lot of courage and that's, you know, something to be admired. The next thing I do after that is to sort of express, okay, well, when you get these thoughts, what, what do you do to manage them? What's, what's your coping mechanism for these thoughts, for these feelings? Now, if they express they don't have any, that's a really, really important time to start getting proactive around reaching out to, to people and um, what resources and things are around them in their area and helping them, you know, access them. So, yeah, that's where I sort of go. But then again, you might have people that go, yep, I've suffered from depression for 30 years. This is something that's quite common to me. I felt like talking about them because, you know, a problem shared is a problem half. And then they might express that they have a psychologist. They go for runs. They meditate. They do all these different things. That's not to not still be hypervigilant around that person. But it's more recognising that it's like, okay, well, they've got the things in place for themselves and they've reached out to me. So then keeping, again, that open communication um, and just keeping an eye on them. Yeah, that's, again, that's sort of my perspective on it. I don't want people to feel like that is the, the, the law by any means. I think lived experience is so incredibly valuable and clearly that's making a difference to the people that you're really trying to reach as well and be a role model for. So what you're doing, Bailey, is working. Like, congratulations. It's so funny, though, because I... I get some people that will sort of ring me. I, you know, have people up and down the coast in different, maybe they're accessing hospitals or rehabs or whatever, or even family friends. They'll go, oh, I'm struggling with what's going on. And then I sort of will go, oh, me too. You know, like my head's been all over the shop today. And sometimes people go, oh, I thought that you, you know, were pretty much fixed now. Like think about what you're doing. You're doing something so, you know, proactive. And I just thought that you're all better. And um, I sort of say some more things to people. I said, if I waited for the day that everything aligned perfectly and I was feeling well enough to do this, I'd never go. And for me, it's about living a life with a mental illness and, and despite that mental illness and not letting it stop me, but also being okay with the fact that it's going to probably present itself at different times and, and that's all right. And, and again, I, I'm not trying to ever preach to people about, you know, I don't bring out a new line of some sort of, aerosol you know this aerosol will fix you you know I, it's more me just going I'm I'm a fellow sort of survivor I manage it myself like as well and and I'm just out there trying to do positive things which we're all very capable of doing 
that's what I feel like as you were saying, sort of people resonate with where they go, oh yeah, that lived experience. I'm like, oh, I'm still living it. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> I imagine what you're doing is igniting hope for for people. I hope so, huh? Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think it's more as well, like I've had a lot of people that have reached out, which would this stunning ripple effect that I'm really, really excited about where it might not be about mental illness, but it might be like, oh, I've always wanted to, you know, ride my bike across Europe and, and now I think I'm going to do it. Like I've, I've seen what you're doing and I think, and, and I'm like, that's amazing. That's fantastic. I've got people that have wanted to do, you know, all types of wonderful, wacky things. And uh, I think that's what a lot of people are also drawing from it. Like, going, oh, you know, it's, it's just difficult, not impossible. Like we can, you know, this, this sort of stuff is doable. Like she's doing it. And I think that's, quite powerful in itself as well so yeah that's been fantastic absolutely and that's why I was so happy when you agreed to be on the podcast because I know that it will inspire other people who are sitting and listening who have had other wacky ideas of like I could do that that would be really fun and actually not dismiss it and follow through with it so you talked about earlier about having lots of obstacles that you have faced and confronted and like big ones, like running out of food or, you know, getting into a dangerous situation. I talk a lot about serendipity, you know, the the effect of it that it's had in my own life and, you know, I share it in different stories on the podcast. So I'm really curious to know whether or not you've got any stories of serendipity of how things just work out when you least expect it or you don't know how and there just seems to be a certain magic (laughs) to it I um yeah look I've had I've had a lot of moments where it's like that was that was lucky so you know those sort of words where it's like that's kind of just so wild that that turned out the way it did I've had experiences waterways that I was very very um scared or uncertain about how because and then all of a sudden and you hadn't seen anybody all day and then all of a sudden, like a, a kayak will just go up in the middle of nowhere. And you're just like, you, how do you hitchhike on a riverbed? You're like, help me. <laughs> so, you know, things like that have been phenomenal. And I actually probably one of the, the ones that I found the most kind of like aligning by the universe, maybe, um, when I, before I started, I needed to get a website sorted. And like, I, I saw this local guy. I know it sounds weird, but he was on his laptop in the sun on the bar beach in Newcastle. I said to my friend at the time, I said, what's that guy doing? Like, he couldn't see his screen. And then she said, he's this photographer, videographer around Newcastle, you know, blah, blah, blah. So he just caught my eye that way. And then she said, oh, I actually have him a friend on, you know, something. Do you, you know, I'll pass on your details. I reached out to him, expressed what I was doing, and he was just beside himself. And, and it, it really aligned with all of his values and everything. He was like, I'll do a shoot for you for content for your website. I'll also do websites. I went, oh, perfect, you know. And then we started, became best mates around that. And then we sort of see, started seeing each other, like just before the walk. But he actually has bipolar as well. And there was just so many different things. And then it just aligned in the sense that there's just this beautiful, like, connection with another human being. And it was so mutually beneficial. And then he's then come and visited me on the, the walk. I think he's actually going to probably come into Byron tomorrow and, and catch up with He's done like all the photography and videography for my walk pretty much. Now doing that sort of stuff yourself and paying people to do it would cost you $3,500 a shoot sort of thing. So 
here I was with like a lifetime best friend who was doing all my website stuff, who was meeting me in some of the most just vast places on in Victoria where I had no resources and, and keeping me alive. Like things like that, the people I've met in that way where it's just, yeah, just there's been a few coincidental things that you just go, that's, that's suspicious. That's, <laughs> that's fantastic. So, yes, a, a lot of things like that. Other times when I've been in certain grocery stores, just, you know, someone will spark up a conversation and then one of them is a radio presenter. You're like, oh, yeah, we'll pop down the radio tomorrow. And you go, I'm in a general store in Victoria. How does this happen? Yeah. <laughs> so stuff like that. Yeah, it, it does happen. And a lot of the time as well, um, if I'm in tricky situations where things might go wrong or I might run out of food, there'll be sometimes times where I'll um, somebody who's hiking and I'll ask what I'm doing and then they'll split some of their food with me just things like that where you don't go out of your way to approach people or really actively pursue a certain thing and it almost just kind of comes to you or maybe it's just an odds game because I've been walking for so long and met so many people that <laughs> eventually I'll run into someone anyway yeah well look I believe thoroughly in the in the universe's ability to just line things up in a way that go beyond how we could ever do it, you know? And I really believe that grace follows purpose. So the fact that you had even had that idea and then followed through with it in that process of making it a reality, having that connection with that person, he did an amazing job with your website. It's a great, it's a great representation of the journey that you're doing. So Thanks for sharing those. (laughs) So you are spending a lot of time by yourself and in nature. And I'm curious about like what effect that's had on your connection to yourself and, you know, whether or not you, you feel a deeper connection to that inner spirit within as a result. Oh, definitely. And I think it's also like a lot of acceptance has gone on with a few things that I prior I just thought that they were going to be forever, you know, feelings, emotions, thoughts, uh, having time to reflect on things. Like I, I suffered from um, eating disorders most of my teen years and I really on this work, walk have found a lot of solace in my body, you know, appreciation of it, what it does for me. It doesn't matter what it looks like. And that for me, I don't think I probably could have gained in a different way. But I also trust the fact that I'm a good person. And whether that aligns with, you know, my own energy or my own um, understanding of self or soul, but recognizing that no matter what I do, even if I make mistakes, as long as I can say sorry, I know in myself I would never do anything to hurt anyone or intentionally do the wrong thing. And but a lot of comfortability within being in my own company has really followed me around, which might not have quite been there before. I think it's a um a comfortability with, with self that really comes from, you know, listening more in tune to what's going on inside. And I, I've got quite good at also putting up those sort of boundaries for myself, you know, looking out for myself more so than just everyone else and recognising you can't, pour from a cup that's empty so constantly trying to make sure that my cup has stuff in it um which again that comes from ultimately recognizing your own needs wants 
um, desires, things like that, um, you know, even energy and, and how that's topped up in a certain way. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that there's been a lot of time to develop intrinsically as well as the other stuff that I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. And I guess that sort of just comes with time, you know, giving yourself time to do that, designated. And, and even if you don't know what's happening, you know, they're all sort of turmoil and, and traumas and challenges that that element of self is getting bigger, stronger, you know, more advanced. It's, even if it doesn't feel like it, you know, it really does tend to do that, I think. It sounds like you are developing yourself, like just each step, each day, there's just yeah. more acceptance. Something. Something's even, happening. Even when I said something's going on every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, like I read on your website that you don't have a fixed end date. What's the plan moving forwards? It's kind of around dry season up in Cairns, you know, to get to take, I have to be there for the dry season because of all the the flooding that they get through their wet. So as long as I'm in Cairns by May, yeah, that's kind of the only real timeline that I'm on. But I, I really wanted to take the opportunity because I feel like this is one of those things you kind of do once. Like I probably won't do another East Coast bike after this. Um, I wanted to create the opportunities um, with people and connecting in different communities. And you can't you can't put a time limit on that sort of stuff. And especially sometimes I'll have somebody that'll reach out and be like, you know, I, I lost my child two years ago to, to suicide and I'll pretty much scratch out the whole day because I don't know where that's going to go and I don't know how much there will be a need for for time and you know to just invest in that conversation so that's why I've sort of slowed it down I haven't done it for time I haven't done it for anything else it's trying to create helpful spaces for people as I go as well as you know enjoying it myself for the most part and that's probably a really good point on the interview to tell us what are you doing on each stop like how can people you know, access you. Like I saw your post that you put on a community Facebook page for for Byron, and you said that you were available for yeah. different talks. Like, just share a little bit about like what you what you're keen to do and share when you're in different places. Yeah, so some places I'll stop in for a you know day or two. Some you know I'll sort of just stop in overnight, and that can make it a little bit harder sometimes to connect. But I absolutely love going into schools like that's you know if, if they'd want me to pop in I'm more than happy to do that and, and kids crack me up and um but I do you know sometimes we'll stop in at mental health services um sometimes people find a little bit of solace I guess in in, in having a chat but yeah even locals and, and literally kind of anyone anyone and everyone <laughs> I know that's really really broad but I just enjoy engaging with people whether it they, they want something as far as being able to connect on a mental health level or maybe it's just a, a chat about the adventure because they enjoy that or sometimes it's also people wanting to contribute you know maybe people want to make me a dinner to show the appreciation they have and the interest they have around the walk or you know in the sense that they they want me to come to their surf club meeting in the morning or the their women's swimming group or their walking over 70s group like it's just wonderful to connect with people and I think we're constantly in a world that's getting it's getting harder and harder to connect they see it as almost like a bit of a lightning rod like yes <laughs> I want to speak to you so yeah anything of that nature I stopped in at um, aged care facilities as well you know they absolutely love my stories and then 
most times they actually tell me stories that are more interesting than my own. So, you know, that's wonderful as well. That's incredibly generous of you. And I can imagine, you know, the little sparks of inspiration and hope that you are spreading all across the East Coast as you travel through it, Bailey. Like how can people support you? Like you mentioned that people can just offer to cook you dinner. Where do they find out more? Um, so I have a website. It's called wandering-minds.org. And on Facebook, it's Wandering Minds Walk. Um, but it can it can be anything. It can be, you know, a hot meal. It can be sometimes even, for example, camping in someone's backyard. I have done that. <laughs> So it really, uh, it can be financially, you know, obviously there's that big target of 100,000 by the end of the year, which would be phenomenal. But again, it's it's one of those things, it's really up to the individual, maybe even it's a packed lunch, uh, a couch to sleep on, maybe they even want to join me for a bit of a walk. It's always nice to have a bit of company out there. So um, yeah, there's, there's so many ways to get involved and to be a part of it if, if they want to. But the best way to probably get in contact with me is through that website. And, you know, the messages there go straight to my email address anyway. So I, I do my best to, to get back to all of them. And I've had people that have reached out before and been like, I don't know how to help you, but I know I want to. And, you know, I might go, well, I'm not going to be in your town for another week, but how about we have a chat when I'm a little bit closer and we might be able to assess uh, what, what's necessary and what's needed maybe. And, and that's often really helpful as well. That's great. And also like that raises a question I was that I'm sure other people, you know, who have these grandiose ideas of like, okay, I could do this. Like you're raising the money for Black Dog Institute and I will put all the links in the show notes to your website and to your fundraising page and to your Facebook. So anyone listening, go to the show notes and you'll, you'll find all the places you can connect with Bailey and her fundraising but how are you actually funding it yourself because obviously yeah you must need to feed yourself and equipment and like how are you funding it for so long yeah so I actually um I got a job in the mines for six months again probably with your serendipity thing it was just it came out of nowhere and like my sister was actually working for corporate protection Australia and they were contracted out at the mines and then they had a spare spot and she's like, it's only going to be for six months, which hit right on the mark of when I kind of wanted to leave anyway. And um, the pay's great. And you just you just work as COVID testing. And because you're a nursing student, like they're happy to let it happen that way. And I just went, yeah, right. And in, on reflection, there's no way I would have been able to do this without that work that I did. Just miraculously sort of turned up six months before I left. And then finished six. Like I, I had to, you know, it wasn't like I quit. Like they stopped. It was weird. Um, so I have savings from that. I also get sponsored by um, my dad's business, sort of helps out a bit with the walk as well. And then I have like a GoFundMe that's separate to the fundraising page. And that, I think that has like four or 5,000 in it, um, which is basically just sort of for medical supplies, equipment. You know, if I, my tent gets damaged and I need a new one, it's kind of there locked and loaded, which has been exceptionally helpful. So yeah, but yeah, so it's, it's more of a, it is kind of self-funded and, and a bit family funded. And then I've got like a little bit from sort of family, friends and locals in that in that GoFundMe for those sort of specific, you know, medical or equipment needs. And then, yeah, the rest is also just kind of donated by people that in the sense that they it's more those tangible donations. It's the food, it's the, you know, letting me camp for free at maybe a reflections holiday park, that sort of stuff. Sort of one-off 
experiences with that generosity and kindness, they really add up. And on something like this where people want to just be a part of something bigger than themselves, you know, that they're really happy to do that and, and provide that. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's a group effort. Oh, that's great. And I'm sure that people listening, uh, if they have ways to give, they will. Like, do you, have you already had any thoughts about what's next after this? Oh, not, not yet. I, I, it's hard because there's one part of me that's like, we're going to go on to the next big thing. Mm. And then there's another part that's like, we're going to get a tree house in the middle of the bushes and not talk to anyone and that's going to be perfect. And so I, day to day basis, it sort of um, chops and change, but I also don't want to, fall into that trap where I feel like I constantly need to outdo myself and yeah. do the next big thing, next big thing. Because that I feel, which is a thing that most people sort of get into the next car or the next house or the next, you know, whatever. So I'm just kind of mindful a little bit of that at the moment because sometimes, yeah. some days I wake up and I'm, like, I'm going to go around Australia. And then the next day I'm like, easy tiger, just relax. Which is... <laughs> it sounds really wise, you know, and you just never know what's ahead. Because could you have yeah, ever predicted exactly. this is what you would do when you were younger and in those years of struggling, could you have ever predicted you'd do this? Definitely not. Actually, growing up, I always thought I was going to have an orphanage one day. So, you know, um, let's just say that the, the sky was always the limit just even when I was young. I knew I was going to help people. I didn't know it was going to present its way in this. You know, I didn't know the thing. I always had that feeling like I wanted to help those around me effectively but I don't think my younger self would be like surprised we were here but it would definitely be like why didn't you do something like less dangerous and gross like why <laughs> why didn't you do something fun like that's I've seen what you do most days I'm not good like <laughs> <laughs> that's really hilarious <laughs> well I hope you continue to surprise yourself daily <laughs> <laughs> Bailey, it's so beautiful. I am just so happy that I had the chance to connect with you and I encourage everybody to check out your website, follow your journey. I, I know I will be following it now <laughs> every step until you arrive. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. Like I said, I will include all the links and yeah, encourage everybody to go and support this incredible mission that you're on thank you so much for your time and I'm so glad we got here <laughs> and thanks for tuning in to my chat with Bailey I hope it inspires and motivates you in some way uh, and if the discussion has brought anything up for you and your own mental health, then please reach out to get support for services in your local area and your country. If you live in Australia, there are details of organisations you can contact for support in the show notes. I suffered from an eating disorder for 16 years of my life, so I know firsthand the enormity of struggling with your mental health. So I'm sending love to you all.